Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? The other one, we don't know what's going on with the other one. He, no, he's at home. He's, you know, he's it's got this, stuff. It's this constant thing of like really teaching a, a human, a, a human who's new to the job, mm-hmm. teaching them about like cause and effect. Mm. You go to sleep late. If you only eat bagels and pizza, if you never drink water, if you... <laughs> You know, yeah, it, it makes your body feel feel bad, and it's not like you're sick. It's, I mean, you're sick, but it's not like you have a it's virus. It's, it's more like, of an, a chronic underlying issue. <laughs> that absolutely, and it's like it's totally within your control to manage because what happens to, and I guess I, I'm guilty of this too. Maybe everybody is when they think about it as something like a sickness they feel it's happened to them and therefore there's no sure they don't have to take any accountability for anything teaching accountability is also really look really tough it took me to be 46 and in the hospital with a heart issue for me to take any responsibility i mean it had been building but it took that and that was to get me to say oh wait a second wait a second it's my job to take care of myself like Mm -hmm. i it never crossed my mind that like there's cause and effect. It took me to 46 to be like, oh, right. If I do A for number of years, this happens. Meaning right. if I eat fast food, if I don't, if I don't move my body enough, but mostly it's food intake for me. If I eat it, you know, if I, I never got it. I never right. got it. And so it's hard to teach. It's a hard it's thing. It's really to hard teach. to teach. It's hard to teach. It's hard to learn. By the way, are you 46? I thought you were the same age as me. I think I'm 46. No, I think you're 45. Aren't you oh born in 1975? Gosh. Yeah, but October 19. 19- yeah, but you'll this year you will turn 46. Just like I because you've been saying that for a few weeks, and I'm like, wait, is she 46? I could have sworn we were the same exact age. You're 45. <laughs> Don't jump the gun, sweetheart. Oh my gosh, I am. Okay, Miles Miles called me on that earlier too. And I think it, I was reading my report. They got it wrong on my report at the doctor's office. And I just read it and it was like giving me my stats. And it was like 46-year-old female. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm 46. Oh Wait. my God, that's fascinating. That is such a fascinating... I just I believe mean, them. Right? It's like the way oh, that... I, I do, Hello. I love that. That's fantastic, by the way. It's like central station operator. Exactly. Uh, No, but the way how with when somebody tells you something with what is the word? Assurance or certainty, then you you just believe them. Oh, everybody. I'm 45. That's like how people commit to crimes that they did. It's like, well, you're telling me I'm 46. I I mean, what do I know? Oh, that's, you know what? I, I am fascinated. I watch shows a lot about false confessions and it is it is everything that you always say it's all psychology it's all wearing someone down 
and then it what is it, and then it's totally um up to interpret it's up to like chance whether you you know invent when you say eventually yeah i did it it was me yes you're right it was me it just it's a matter of time if the psychology is right or wrong yeah where do you stand on the brendan dassey um um, I forget. I forget the other guy. The, this is the one um, in Mani- Manitowoc, w- uh, Wisconsin, or Michigan. Okay, where they the family owned a, like a junkyard type of thing, and this woman photographer goes out to right, 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 yeah. right. Whether it was and, a false confession or not. Yes. The well, so so two people got charged. Right. The, the man, the grown adult man, and then the teenager yes the teenager seems like that was definitely a coerced confession yes but i watched the the one of the documentaries about it and i really didn't know i really yeah there's there's i i remember that one faintly and i think that i i didn't i don't remember me feeling clearly that that whether the adult was guilty or not and i and I, living with Miles, who was, you know, a, a lawyer and was a public defender, said all the time, says all the time, innocent people confess to stuff they don't do all the time, all the right. time. It just happens. Right. Just and happens. whether, and sometimes they're not even coerced. Right. <laughs> oh my God, it's really freaky when you think about it. And it could be related to this thing that we always talk about, about knowing yourself. I mean, uh you know, if you're susceptible, if if you if you are a person who's unclear as to who you are, all it really takes is somebody with a certain amount of confidence to, ref, you know, to say, well, I'll tell you, this is who you are. And then you, is, you believe them. Which is why if you are ever, and, and Miles tells me this, he drills it into me and I practice it all the time. If you are ever in a situation with the police at all, the immediate first thing is I have nothing to say. I need a lawyer. Even if they're like, Hey, did you see on um, this night, were you home at your apartment? And did you see overlook? Cause I, I run these scenarios by because we, so my balcony overlooks that the, I just won't say, so I don't get into, I don't get into, you. you don't have to cut anything, but I overlook a certain place and I can see some wild stuff going on. And then I imagine the police coming and saying, Hey, did you, and I say, you know what? I really don't want to say anything. Um, I'm not going to say anything on the advice of counsel. And I'd like to speak to my lawyer. I'd like to talk to a lawyer first okay. because anything, anything, it doesn't matter if they're like, Hey, did that, did that stop sign turn, turn green? Did you see it? I, you know what? I really can't say on the advice of counsel and they will and they will say horrible things sometimes in response mm. to that and they could say whatever they want back to that like they they they'll say you you know how dare you whatever they'll they can say it that's their free right but it's also imperative that people get a lawyer immediately immediately okay. you're stopped at a track anyway i'm just like a huge proponent of i need yeah. a lawyer immediately Absolutely. Because that's how people get into these situations too. And they don't know and they start to talk and they think they're quote helping. And then they're all of a sudden they're behind bars for 170 years. I mean, also just by the way, the fact that like, even with all of this video footage, we're still debating whether or not somebody killed somebody. We what what do you, we have the tape? What right. Are you, what are you? What's what's to debate here? It, it's really debating whether or not whether or not we're going to protect Black lives. I mean, that's the yeah. whether whether or not we're going to un, un unroot or 
take out mm-hmm. racism from our try to from our country's fabric and that's really and the people question. are like mm, no right. <laughs> we're not right. that's not not now maybe later they're, maybe they're for gonna be like hard pass now. hard pass on all that hey let me run this by you okay so here's what i want to run by you um our beloved punky brewster played by the actress Soleil Moon Fry. She has, she made a documentary about, did you see it? I did not. 90. Something about 90. Something about, like kid, kid 90. Kid 90. She is a really interesting person. She, she recorded everything in her life from the time she was like nine or 10 years old uh, to now. I mean, she just, that was her thing. She's documented between videos saving voicemail she has like every voicemail she's ever received including when 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 at the time where it was real tape she has she kept all that she kept every diary every every um video yeah and so this documentary i mean it's not even a documentary it's more just like what would you call it it's more of a you know what it's it's kind of like a personal essay Mm, in video video. yes and it's her reflecting on her life it's her reflecting on what it was like to be it's not even that much about being a star although everybody that's in her video all the child stars knew each other right? right it was like they'd have a party and it's sarah gilbert and leonardo dicaprio and and her and whatever like all the child actors were we're friends because yeah that makes sense it's like it's a very elite club how many people understand what it's like to have a hit show and have an adult and have an adult job when you're still just a very young child but um so she's exactly our age 45 45. she was born in 1975 and she is just reflecting on she's looking at her child self through adult eyes and she's you know Basically, Boz, she's doing the same thing that we're doing right now with this podcast. She is synthesizing all of this, you know, and she's realizing where there were some big holes. Like she actually knew eight people who died. I don't know that it was all by suicide, but I think the majority of them were people who died by suicide or maybe overdose. And one of the things that she says a lot in it is that listening back to messages and stuff like that from those people, she realizes they were really asking to be seen. And she's a little hard on herself. She's saying, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, because you were also 18 years old. Like what, what 18 year old does see it? I mean, I relate to the guilt, but she's pretty hard on herself about it. Um, Anyway, the thing that was really, I just kept thinking over and over again is, this is one of those thoughts that feels profound, but sounds dumb. Sure. So I'm just going to trust in the process. Um, What is striking to me is like, we really are just the same essential human our whole lives. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that changes is how our circumstances influence, you know, the way that we're expressing that essential being mm. and maybe it's that you know you know you you have this side of yourself when you're this age and you don't and then you kind of close it off when you turn to a d- different age or you discover new facets to yourself my mom used to always say 
you never feel older. I mean, you feel physically like you're decrepit, <laughs> but you never mentally feel like, oh yeah, I totally feel like an adult and I can't relate to what I felt like as a kid. She said, you never have that. She's 71. You always feel like the same exact person. And I didn't really understand that. I don't think until yesterday when I watched this last night, when I watched this thing, I, I really am the same. And I posted that picture of myself. For oh my God. You look old. the same. I mean, that is, and Tate wrote uh, that I, that's the girl I remember something like that. I realized that's right. That I, I have always been that girl. Mm-hmm. I had to hide myself at certain times. I had to put myself up at certain times, but like, that's still, that's the through line when I'm 90. If I live to be 90, I'm still going to be that little girl. And that was strangely like a great feeling. I don't, I don't, not sure why, because I spent so much time thinking I had to get away from who I was as a kid and like turn into this other person, I think. Mm -hmm. And the idea that no, 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 you're, you're born as a perfectly person. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a freedom in, in it, a freedom in knowing that, for me anyway, that the core is there. It does not go anywhere because I think that that, that um, for, for better or worse, it doesn't go anywhere. But I think as we get older, it's for better because we're, because we're doing the work of trying to figure out who we are, what makes us tick. I think if it becomes for worse, if you just keep walling it off and trying to mold it mm-hmm. into something it's not, then it's a nightmare. Then it's, 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 it's a personality problem big time. Mm -hmm. But if, if you're, if we're doing the work, which I think we are of saying like, who am, what happened to me? What the hell happened to me from that age of that little being to now? And how have I, how have I changed, but remained the same basically? And is that okay? And I think we're trying to get okay with, with just being that core and having that be enough and and with making some tweaks, if you know, Mm -hmm. some things out of whack, but I find it comforting too, because what it means is that there's, there, there is an essential beingness that can't be taken away. Yes. Mm-hmm. And thank God, because if not, we're these floating sort of nebulous, uh, that's like, it reminds me of when people dissociate and when, when people don't feel real, you know, when they're, mm-hmm. when they have a personality and a mental illness, when they, they get into like, I don't feel like I actually am here. And I mm-hmm. think that is because a, a lot of that. And when I felt that in the past, it's my core is like, am I this? What am I? And now I know, no, this is who I am. I may not know how old I am, but I know that I am here. And that I, and that, that like your picture of your, you know, I suggest everyone go look if you're not, now you're going to get maybe hopefully tons of friends request, friend requests, <laughs> but it's just that essential beingness that is so important because when we're 90 and when we die, that's it. Right. Like, what have we what have we you want to hold on to that little girl because that's all that's what we have. Yeah. And and to this speaking to this idea that we were just talking about that, you, if you're suggestible to other people telling you who you are, um, what's frightening and fascinating to me is that all it takes at a young age is you're bopping along through life thinking this one thing about yourself. 
and then somebody says something that contradicts that. Right. And as you learned with the whole thing about walking the dog, who's walking who, and you completely misinterpreted that for like 25 years, 30 yeah, years, 30 years, you could just be operating on the completely wrong. You could have. And by the way, that happens all the time too. You talk to somebody and you that's what people are reflecting back to us about listening to the podcast. I thought it was this and I listened to this person and now with my adult eyes, I realize it's this. I mean, it's it's stunning. It's I have had and that's why therapy is helpful, not for everybody, but a lot of times because you have another person. Like I remember thinking I was so fat as a little kid because my mother, whether she meant to or not, you know, whatever. The point is that was the message I got, right? Somehow that was the message that my body was not okay. So one day I took a photograph of myself as a child to my therapist and said, you know, God, it's uh, my mom, you know, the, the message I got was you'd be so beautiful if you weren't so fat. That was the message, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I showed the picture and my therapist just said, you know, you weren't fat. And I said, what? And she said, this is not a child that I would call overweight or medically overweight or obese in any way. And I was like, what? It blew my, I, I couldn't, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So, and that can be disturbing those, those, uh, those schisms, those rifts. But mm -hmm. if you're doing the work to heal it around that, I think it can be very eye opening. And also, like you said, like a relief of some kind. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. Uh, I, the other thought I had watching this is I wish that I had been a person who you were, just, we were just talking in real life about how um, you don't have any photographs of yourself from college years. And a lot of people don't, because a lot of people that we have on the show, we ask mm -hmm. them and some people have very little, I have always regretted my that that I I actually did take a lot of photos just around the time that we went to LA because that was like a novel thing but not the rest of college and I never kept diaries I would always try to start a diary I have actually one diary that I got when I was probably six or seven and and it I still have it and it probably has about 20 entries because I did one when I was six or seven. Then I did one when I was like 10 or 11. <laughs> I was like 13 or 14. Um, but even just that, even just that little bit, I loved to go back. There was a long time where I didn't want to look at it because I think the thing that happened to me and maybe it happens to a lot of people in their 20s is just full of loathing for who you were as a kid and such a desire to leave that all behind and turn into this. Cause you imagine that you, that's what it is. You imagine that version 2.0 of you yeah. is going to be ideal. And in some cases, and certainly in my case, I, that, that this vision I had had nothing to do with who I really am. Mm. And it had everything to do with who I thought everybody wanted me to be. So when I really get someplace in life, when I really have it all together, I'm going to look like this. I'm going to act like this. I'm going to have these. I'm going to be interested in these things, things that were just like, that was never going to happen right. for me. It's, it's just not in your core. It's not part of your, <laughs> yeah. it's not part of your thing. Yeah. It's not part of your thing. And so I didn't like to look at these diary entries, but now that I have so much more love for myself at that age, I look back and I go, oh yeah, this is just the same. This well, is me. This is the same person. That picture of you is so beautiful with, with, uh, with Tate. Ooh, 
<laughs> with the hair, the long hair, and the, I mean, it was just like, whoa, that was a great shot. He found that or you found that? I found it. No, okay. I, I have, and I, and I have actually a ton more photos um, that I'm sort of saving for if we have sure. those people on as guests. Um, but I wish I had taken more photos, but the ones that I did take are something I really like about old photos is when you look back and, and you just know, because you know, the person who's in it so well, you know what they were thinking at that moment. You remember what you were thinking. You remember the context of the day and a lot of our personalities really came out in those, in those photographs from, from college, like I'll, I'll show them to you later and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. But um, yeah, I posted that picture, excuse me, of me and Tate because somebody had asked me, uh, one of my kids asked me to see a picture from when I had super, super long hair and I found that one. Yeah. And that's a great example too. Like that whole time I thought I'm so ugly, <sighs> you know, I, well, it's so wasted. We spend so much time wasting it's Just, crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to circle back to the the idea of um, sort of, uh, yes, the, the, the more that I try to be something else, the further away I get from who I really am and who I really am is really where the gold is. Mm -hmm. Like that is, and it sounds so cheeseball, but it's so true. So like just with my, my, I love my agents, my acting agents, but it's not like every audition I do, they're writing. That was great work. Cause sometimes it's one line, whatever they've got lives. But this one audition I just did where I really adapted and adopted or whatever, this idea of, you know what, I'm just going to release my hold on this and have a good time. And it was a fun audition. I really went for it. And even Miles was like, oh, yeah. And, it was and, really good. Yes. Yeah, and, it was really good. And, and, and people are like, you know, my agent was like this. I really enjoyed this. And I was like, that is hilarious because I mean, it's great to hear the kudos, but also it's hilarious because it's the, it's the first audition I've had in years where I said, I'm just going to have fun and let go. It's just, how does this work? And that's why when we talk to people, you know, we've talked to people who are like, who was it? It was, um, oh, when we were in our interviews coming out, uh, with, with Siler, but just that, that, that it's like, when you're free, it's contagious and people really want to buy what you're selling. And even though you're not selling anything, it's so right. crazy. They want to and bottle it. it. And, and, and we think, especially as women, we think uh, we have this idea in our mind of what's um, lo- lovable. And for many of us, it's just like, I'm saying the opposite of, of what we are when really what's lovable is when you love yourself. I mean, it's just <laughs> when you love yourself, people love you. When you are yourself, people ab- appreciate your authenticity. When you um, when you stop being so hyper focused on what you imagine other people want for you, and you start just living in the truth of what you want for yourself, you are you are imminently more beautiful, more certainly happier. And it's- all these things that you think you're pursuing by being this other person, you're totally losing out on because you're trying to be a person that you're not right and you can't fake it that's the other thing so like I watch young actors right I teach and now I'm and I'm watching young actors and some and some and I do the same thing and what we're talking about and then they try to pretend that they really believe 
it was like a pretend then you get really meta into this i'm super confident but i'm so confident that i'm not confident at all and you're like and and as therapist and as a as a as a middle-aged lady i can see i'm like oh no that's not it either like there's this balance it's the true and that's why i hate it it's, the words are so woo woo but and overused but the true authenticity and true vulnerability you can't fake like you cannot maybe if you're a sociopath yeah. but you mostly cannot fake it and it is so um transparent when you when you're trying it on and you have to maybe try it on before you get to the real place but well I and know. i don't i don't know if you experience this in working with um people who are in their early adulthood but it does appear to me that because of where we are technology wise and where people who are 20 have been their entire lives technology wise, it seems that the expectations are so much more intense about not just about how you look and whether or not you have an Instagram worthy life, but also, um, you know, expectations of you completely knowing this thing that we're talking about completely knowing yourself never, it seems that there's less, opportunity for people to have any doubt and to wonder about who they are. I spend, you know, a lot of time on Clubhouse in this one particular room I go into. There's a couple of us that are over 40, but the majority of people are like in their early to mid 20s. And it's really funny because so often they'll, they'll be having a conversation and the three of us who are older, we're just quiet because and I know we're all thinking the same thing. Uh, you're not going to think that for much longer, or you're going to let go of that soon, or you're just lying. You're just behaving right. as as if because you think that that's how you're supposed to come. It's like and it's and the way you know it is you feel it internally. Like I don't know if people know this necessarily about being a therapist, but one of the things that you use the most as a therapist is the feeling you have when you're sitting in the room with somebody, and somebody could be sitting in the room with you and saying my dog got run over and my grandmother died and, 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 and you're bored because they're not, it's not true. Somebody could be talking about eating a bowl of soup and you could be riveted because they're, they're authentically relating their experience. And I feel like people, young people must feel so much pressure mm -hmm. to always be saying something funny or profound or, always having a fresh hot take on something with, mm -hmm. you know, like, in other words, always being about what the product product of the thing is instead of what the process of the mm. thing is, right? Like, do you hear young people talking a lot about just working with their pro process? Or do you find that people are more mm. talking about like, they want to have already arrived at everything? Right. You know and I, mean? I think, yes, I, I totally and I see young people, what, what I really related to is what with what you just said was the pressure to be interesting, right? And to our, and, and how can you be interesting really when mo some, some 22 year olds are super interesting, but what just based on they've had wild life experiences, but mostly you can't be that emotionally interesting at 22. To, it's, and it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you. So what you can do is just focus on the things that, you know, make you, you, and I'm doing this exercise with my class, which is the personal pitch exercise, mm -hmm. because everyone wants to know how to network without being an asshole and how to yeah. schmooze without being schmoozy. And I'm like, got to work on you, your personal pitch. What makes you, you, regardless of what they think about it. 
So let's work on that. Let's uh, let's not talk about branding because that makes me want to jump off a bridge. Uh, I know, right? It's you're not cattle. Sad. You're not cattle. <laughs> you we're, we're and we're, you're not in the Nexium cult. No, thank it's God. Need to be branded. <laughs> no, no branding. What we're gonna do is develop who like talk about who you are and what makes you you. And if it takes you a while to figure out, fine, great. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're doing, yeah. and 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 we'll see how it goes. We'll see how. <laughs> I don't that know, would be a funny. That would be a funny sketch, like a bunch of millennials sitting at a conference table talking about branding, and then certain people are like, "Yeah, here, here's here's my brand. I'm, you know, I belong to the Louis Vuitton." Because that's the other thing. It's like they're they are almost literally branded with labels and yes. and and ideals. You know, like one of the things that's so interesting about that fire festival debacle. Oh is, yes. I heard, do you know who Gia Tolentino is? She's a yes. writer for Vanity Fair. Yes. She's a writer. Yes. I she was in. I've seen. I've read her work before, but I've never seen her interviewed or anything. And she was in this one documentary about the Fire Festival, and she said it. She's encapsulated it so perfectly. The whole reason that the something like the Fire Fest could go as horribly as it did, it's one hundred percent about the influencer life and the lie of it and the way that it people are coerced and manipulated into thinking that they're missing out on something that doesn't even exist it's it's emperor's got no clothes on times a thousand it's it's and there are certain like you always say there are certain outliers and exceptions to the rules who who make a bajillion dollars as influencer there's one out of every million makes a million or whatever it is yeah. so there are so there are people that are profiting off of it but it's so rare and the rest of us are just sheeple, you know, and we're just yeah. following them to the this festival that doesn't exist, never did exist, can't exist, and and you're all going to die on this island. And the thing about the festival, and, and um, you know, people were tweeting bef- weeks before, this is a fraud. It does. Here's photos. Here's the photo of the Sandals Resort, and you can see that where they're telling you is a private island is part of Sandals, and it's like their parking lot. It's like their undeveloped parking lot. Uh, people would see that and not believe it because Kendall Jenner was gonna right. go to <laughs> right, right. It's, because they want wild. to be Kendall Jenner. They yeah. want that life and they will do whatever it takes to, and it does come back to at the core, not having a core of, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who am I really? And you can't really know that at 22. So it's, you're in a very vulnerable position to be like we are talking about, to be, to be very influenced clearly yeah. by influencer culture. And it's like, you're a diamond and you want to be an emerald. That's what, that's what it feels like to me. Like, but you're a diamond. Why? Right. Why do you want to be an emerald? Like you're you're a diamond. You exactly. A, you have a whole different amazing thing going on here. Why? Why do you have to be this other thing that you can't possibly be? That's not possible. That's why I told you my. I, I can just say that the one most freeing conversation I ever had with an ex. The most freeing conversation I had with my ex was, Jen, you could dye your hair. You could not dye your hair. You could gain weight. You could lose weight. I will never be in love with you. And it was rough, but it was the most liberating thing I have ever heard in my life because I thought, oh my God, I'm free because nothing I do is going to change. 
oh, are you telling me? And then it was like, I had this huge, and it was very hard, but I had this very shortly after this huge epiphany that no matter what I did, it wasn't going to work. And so I might as well just go in another direction and live my life. And I was like, oh, and it was one of those moments where, and I was younger and it was, well, I mean, I was 29, right? So I was, I wasn't that young, but I was young and um, it was the best. It was the best thing he could have ever done. I might as well stop performing my life and just live my life. <laughs> because nothing I do is going to make you love me. You just said you'd never be in love with me no matter what I did. And I was like, okay. Today on the podcast, we have Sue Bennis O'Lear. Now, if ever there was a kindred spirit to the I Survived Theater School podcast, ladies, it's Sue. Sue is... Um, irreverent and authentic and honest and she's been a, an activist and a podcaster and she's a, a physical uh, trainer for, pe- for people especially women of a certain age she's just uh, an all around hilarious swell woman and I'm so grateful that we had her on the podcast please enjoy Sue Bennis O'Lear oh. hello Hello, Sue. Hi, Sue. Hello. Uh, hey. Well, Sue, you. So today we are celebrating two milestones. One is that we uh, passed 1,000 downloads of our podcast. Rock on. Thank you. And the second is that you are the first guest we're having that we don't personally know. <laughs> I was thinking about that on the drive in this morning, how that was going to. What year? When were you guys there? I think you're younger than me. Yeah, so I graduated in '97, and Boz and okay. I were in the same class to start with. But okay. then she graduated. She took a year and went did Shakespeare and Company, mm-hmm. um, and so she didn't graduate until the next year. Okay, I got mm-hmm. there in '91, so I was there with like PJ Powers and. Let's see. Jess Hannah was here. I was with Amy Farrell and Jen Cober. They've been on. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sue, for some reason, your microphone has an echo sound to it. I don't know if that's something. Are you on GarageBand? I'm not on GarageBand. Because sometimes when you do narration, it goes like this. It sounds, it just sounds, it literally sounds, you sound great. You also sound like you're um, speaking at the United Nations. (laughs) You mean I'm not? Oh, that's later. <laughs> um, the room I'm in could be a little wide open. Could they? I yeah, still hear you now. Okay. Good, I can hear you, oh, and you can hear me. Yeah, and praise the Lord. Crazy. Yay! I'm watching. I'm watching The Handmaid's Tale, so oh. everything is praise be. Praise be. I have not under his eyes. I I did not watch that when it came out because I felt we were living through The Handmaid's Tale. But now that things feel somewhat better, maybe I should give it a, a, a return. I was the same way. I didn't watch it because I thought I was living it. Um, but we just started a couple nights ago, and I think it's one of the best shows on television. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, well, I do. And it's crazy to me that the lead actress, I can't think of her name, Elizabeth, from Mad Men. Elizabeth um, Moss. Elizabeth Moss. Moss is a Scientologist yeah. and I'm oddly obsessed with Scientology, not in a way that I want to join, but I just want to know everything about it. Are you and, obsessed uh, with it because you live near Clearwater, Florida? <laughs> no, I was obsessed with it long before I moved to Florida. Okay. Um, I, I'm in it kind of into cults 
and culty. Oh, you've come to the right place. I have. I know. So, okay. So congratulations, Sue. You survived theater school. And as I was saying before, I think we probably will not be able to use the other audio. So I'll say it again. Um, You have the distinction of being our first new to us guest, which is fun. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. So you were there a few years before us. I, Mm -hmm. I don't imagine your experience was like wildly different. And I have to tell you, so you, Sue has a podcast and it's called Strongly Worded. Is that right? The Strongly Worded Podcast. Strongly Worded Podcast. And I started listening to it from episode one. And in episode one, you guys have this thing where you're like alluding to the fact that you want to talk about something political. But and then you have this (laughs) moment where you say like, one of us. I forget if you said well, one of us is a Trump supporter and one of us isn't. Right. And and you said like, or there, I said like they're wondering which one of us is the Trump supporter, which I totally was. And yes. and then I spoiler alert, <laughs> neither one of us. <laughs> yes. Well, okay, that was going to be my question because I got to the point where we talked about the fact, or you talked about the fact that you are not a Trump supporter, and I got the impression that your co-host wasn't. But I thought maybe we were going to find something out later that that he no, actually voted no. for Trump. So season one of the Strongly Worded podcast was about figuring out how to podcast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure you understand, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then uh, season two, we actually have better equipment and a studio and like a, a an arc. But season one is fun for those kind of getting to know us moments like that one. Yeah, neither one of us are Trump supporters. And we didn't set out to even make a political podcast. It's really not. We were just launching in a political time. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. So I don't if, if people I don't know if there are any Trump supporters left out there that would have anything to do with me, but you can come listen. Yeah. I mean, we don't <laughs> right. yes. Trump every episode. You're you're open to all listeners of yeah. all stripes. We're, we're inclusive. So somewhat. So as as I understand it, you aside from the podcast, you are not currently working in the field of entertainment. I'm not an actor. No, I probably only uh did I think two plays after I left the theater school. Um, but I feel like I acted all the time. Um, I, let's see, I left after my second year. No, I didn't. I started my third year. Um, that's, I, I took a leave of absence. My, the first, what was it? Trimester or whatever they were yeah. the first quarter of my third year. And, but I knew I wasn't going to come back when I, when I left, oh. but I wasn't prepared to just quit. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to be a, a college or theater school dropout. So I went the leave of absence route and then never went so back. What was, I don't know. Maybe it's still good. Maybe I could call them. That up. would be fantastic. Please try to go back, please. <laughs> just for, just for, and then the podcast, the podcast the whole thing and be like, right. It would be like right. um, strangers with candy. Like Amy Sedaris goes back to high school. It would be fantastic. Exactly. But how, what was, it what was went on in, at the theater school for you that you were like, I'm out of here, you know? Well, so leading up to going, like my uh, youth theater experience was pretty, I don't know, it was, I, I guess, my first taste of activism. Like, I didn't know in the youth theater I grew up in that we were doing plays about injustice, about racism, about whatever ism we were discussing in that play. It was just a play with a strong message, and I had a great time. But there was an element of that even in high school, like I went to an inner city public high school. So it was what they called colorblind casting, mm-hmm. right? That was in and of itself somewhat activist. 
And some of that, which I probably at the time couldn't say that I loved about performing, just didn't exist for me at the theater school. It became about other things. It became about competing with each other, not getting cut. Um, you know, I, I did, I received a warning my second year and I sat in that meeting talking about it, thinking in my head, but not having the balls yet to be able to say this is, can I say balls and bullshit? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have the balls to say that I thought it was bullshit. Like I, I think that I was warned because uh, of a conversation I had with my advisor about how I didn't really care about, like my definition of success was not to necessarily be on TV or on Broadway. And I think that once I had that conversation, you know, they, they didn't really think I wanted to be there. Maybe, I don't know. So, you know, I, I have a, I, I left school and studied psychology, which helped me put some of this stuff in place. Like they, there was so much that happened to us in theater school that was sort of about stripping us down and, you know, rebuilding fresh. But what the hell did we need stripped down at 17 and 18 years old? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and there wasn't any sort of psychological or emotional support. We could be stripped down in our scene study class and, you know, I like crying, cry, tears were a badge of honor, but then it was like, okay, class is over on to, mm -hmm. you know, and it was, I, I just kind of at the time thought it was bullshit. I didn't, it wasn't about the art to me anymore or about what we were communicating. I mean, it just was about other things. And I, I didn't, I just didn't feel like I was, I mean, we were going to school. I was going to school at a time like when the LA riots happened and we weren't talking about it. We were talking about our pelvic clocks. Um, so I just, I just felt like there was this huge pressure on us to be authentic, but we were babies. What did we have to give back? It was manufactured to me. It wasn't authentic. It was not an authentic experience to me. And so you, but you had made it to your third year. So you mm -hmm. knew you weren't going to be cut, but that was when mm -hmm. you chose well, to leave. I came face to face with a little class they like to call musical theater. <laughs> yes. Oh, which we Mark, have not. Was it Mark, Mark Elliott, which we have not talked mm -hmm. at all about oh, musical theater. I have, but, yes. Yeah. Mark Elliott is a whole and, journey of himself. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't sing. I, I don't sing. I, it, and it's not a matter of, oh, she's just not, I don't sing. I have been in musicals where I was taught to speak the lines of my song or where my song was just cut. Like, I don't sing. And I never had any interest in singing or being in musical theater. And I just, I, you know, for three or four weeks was going to this class, like, it, it was just awful. It was just this awful feeling inside. Like, I... I, I was pissed that I was paying for that experience to do something that I knew I wasn't going to do again. And what was I getting from it except being really stressed walking into it and really embarrassed while I was in there. And then, you know, it just, just along with the other things that I felt like were inauthentic to me, that one, it, it just, it was like kind of the last straw. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. So when me. you went on your leave, what did you do? I had a fabulous life where I made a deal with my parents that I could stay in Chicago and they would help support me 
for a year. I worked and they paid my rent and I could stay for a year. But at the end of that year, if I wasn't enrolled to go back to school somewhere, then the financial support would stop. So I uh, was a nanny by day. And at night, I bussed or waited tables or bartended at SBL. Uh, SBL was this little bistro and bar in Lincoln Park that was owned by these fabulous people. Lots of us hung out there to smoke cigarettes and be cool and learn how to drink a martini, a co like a real cocktail and whatever. And, and the gentlemen, the two men who owned it and the staff there became my second family. And, um, and in many ways, that's where I received my real education, like about life was working with the people that were in and out of that bistro. And you said you felt like after you left, you performed for many years. What do you mean by that? Well, so, um, you know, I did when I, I ended up after a year moving back to Michigan, I'm from Michigan, I'm from Flint, Michigan, and I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, but I went back and did some community theater in Flint. I did a couple plays and kind of, uh, I did a play with my dad. I asked my dad, well, we lost a cast member in this play and it, the, the character sounded just like my dad, like he didn't have to act. And I, my dad and I weren't close and didn't have a lot that we related on. And so I was like, do this play and then you'll know something about me. Wow, and, that's very cool. Yeah. Oddly enough, he said yes. And it became a touchstone for us for the rest of his life. Uh, I lost my dad last November. Oh, um, wow. I'm sorry. Thank you. But he did, he did all kinds of plays and improv troops and murder mysteries and joined Toastmasters. Oh like my, he, after this experience with you? Oh mm -hmm, my gosh, mm -hmm. what a beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what, yeah. and, and he, oh, go ahead. A week before he died, as a matter of fact, a week before he died, um, I had him out running some errands. It was a Wednesday afternoon. It was sunny and nice. Then we pulled through a, like a Sonic to get him some lunch. And we were sitting there talking and he said, you know, I never considered those years you spent at DePaul wasted education. And I, that was super, I'm going to choke up, but it was super meaningful to me because he didn't like he uh, could have, because it was a lot of money for me to, you know, have a huge pivot once I left there. But uh, it was, it was meaningful that that was among one of the last conversations we had. Um, about that. It's really true. Mm -hmm. I mean, you no experience is without value, and right. and uh, and people. Who, most people say that what they really got out of theater school, whether they went on to a career in acting or not, is just all of these sort of life skills and understanding mm -hmm. of themselves that you can then carry yeah. into whatever field. But how did right. you, so, so you then went to University of Michigan after you, you I mentioned. Did. I went to U of M and I studied uh, psychology. And I, first off, a little side note is one of the classes back then, they called it abnormal psychology. I don't know that they call it that anymore, but um, we, I had lectures or, you know, two days a week. And then on Friday, all the sections of this abnormal psych class got together in this huge lecture hall to watch a movie, kind of about whatever thing we were talking about that week. And um, so we file in one day and I'm sitting in the middle of 250 people in the lecture hall and Spanking the Monkey is the movie we're watching with Zach Orth from the theater school. I was like, oh my God, I know him. Like I, 
smoked a joint with him. Nobody cared in this 250. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but that's how, you know, that's how you kept in touch with people after you left. You saw them and stuff. You saw them on TV or you saw them in the movies. We didn't have social media yet. Right. We barely had email. So, so can I ask a question, um, Sue? Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you said you were talking about that conversation that you had with your advisor where you were like, you know, my definition of success is not being. So um, I guess my question is, what was your definition of success? Um, Well, what I said at the time uh, in my 18 year old wisdom um, was really to just be doing meaningful work somewhere. Wow. That's pretty Mm -hmm. deep for 17, 18 year old, whatever your wisdom That is, so yeah. you knew that, that, that the fame and fortune that was being sort of touted as our goal was not, not for you. Like you no, didn't buy it. Uh-uh. Okay. You know, if I had it to do all over again, looking back, I probably would have been um, a better director than I was an actor. I, uh, throughout every other sort of pivot job, career, whatever I've taken on in my life has been more about coaching and bringing things out of the people around me than about being the one performing. I mean, I've done a lot of public, almost every job I've ever had has had public speaking. So it is like performing. I am, you know, very comfortable speaking in front of a crowd or um, whatever. But, uh, but I, I took like, for example, um, I was when blogging was taking off and big in the early, like 2009, 2010, I had a website and a blog and it was this I was writing create what I what I called creative nonfiction every day, and it turned into this um, sort of. It was about health and fitness and women who had had babies and were in these different bodies and feeling these different hormones and kind of trying to navigate that. And it was funny. It was humorous, and um, but it was about bringing the experience of the people around me out, not about. I'm losing 10 pounds. Yeah. So you're like, a, you, it's, it seems like you're more of a, yeah, you're, and that speaks to being a director of telling other, mm-hmm. uh, other people's stories, other people's stories more yep, than becoming absolutely. a famous face. Mm-hmm. On- and even with the podcast now, I mean, season two, we have lots of interviews. Our focus on season two is about community and it starts with an examination of our hometowns and how they shaped who we are. And even in these interviews, um, I love that moderator seat. I love kind of just steering the ship, but letting people's words spill out mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of guiding that, guiding the ship a little bit. And at the theater school, it was more like if you, for me anyway, if you did that, you were apt to be left in the dust because everyone mm-hmm. else was so busy being, trying to be competitive with each other that, that, right. that letting other people tell their stories would, would, would not behoove us. You know, I had some great experiences and a lot of success in my classes. And I was in a couple great shows, workshops or whatever we call them second year. But I don't know that any faculty would necessarily remember me because I wasn't I wasn't kind of vying for that top spot. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. um, I second year, my first show, second year, Phyllis Griffin and second year would have been 1992. Um, trying to put this in some context, like the LA riots happened in 1992 and we were not a hugely diverse class. I don't know what it's like now. Um, but Phyllis did for second years for colored girls, but it was cast with all pretty much all, I think all of us were white actresses. Mm -hmm. 
And that's not a piece that was written for me to do anything but I be in awe of, really. I mean, it wasn't ever meant for someone who looks like me or from my experience to perform, but she gave us that. She gave us that gift. And I have thought so many times over the years, like I would love to find her and see if she remembered me and remembered that and talk to her about what that had to be like as a, a black woman in Chicago mm-hmm. with everything that was happening in the world, you know, kind of in contrast to where she worked and who she was working with, why she picked that piece and what, what her side of the story was. That know? would be very interesting to know. She went, you might know this already, but she went on just two or three years later to do that for the main stage. So I want to get to this thing about psychology because uh, both Boz and I also studied psychology in graduate school. And we find so much overlap between the arts and psychology. And basically it comes down to like having a real interest in the human condition and what motivates behavior and what makes people tick, et cetera. In the intervening years since you left coupled with your understanding of psychology. What do you make of your psychology then? And and the, the thing that made you like want to go to a theater school to begin with? And, you know, h- how your psychology played into that? So I am the youngest of four kids and I'm the only girl. My brothers were athletes. So I don't remember choosing um, dance or acting class or any of it. I don't remember choosing it. Um, I just remember always doing it. Um, like I think my, my, my mom finally got her daughter, right? So my choice, so she didn't have to sit in cold hockey arenas or whatever anymore. Um, so my choice to go to theater school was more about, it's just kind of what I'd always done. Like I, have learned in my 40s that in my teens and 20s, I existed and maneuvered very well kind of in the patriarchy. And I didn't, I would have thoughts, but I didn't have a voice yet to say any of it. So my psychology was really about uh, not rocking the boat, doing what I knew I was already, uh, had already had a lot of success at, and never really having asked myself what else there was. Um, But I also know about myself, and I see it in my daughter. Now I have a 13 year old daughter. I was an extremely emotionally mature young person. So some of the kids stuff, or, you know, that middle school, high school stuff, or that sort of stereotypical, you know, acting weird theater person stuff, it was, uh, very unattractive to me. I wanted real. Um, I became that person in high school that my friends, my gay friends were comfortable coming out to. I was that person, you know what I mean? Like you could just be you with me. Um, And that, uh, so like at the theater school, that's like, I became that person that people would come to after they broke down in voice and speech class. Or, and I just, if I would have known the word empath, like I knew I was taking on the experiences of the people around me. Which isn't and always it, easy, right? Yeah, which is, which no. is intense. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was heavy. And uh, so the majority of my social life then, like I made friends outside of school. Like I had, I, I was lucky in that um, I didn't have to work. Like I loved that crazy busy schedule, but I didn't have to put a job on top of it. 
Um, so I made friends outside of school that had either, you know, maybe left or gotten cut from the theater school or that I just met at DePaul. Um, and I, I had to have a life outside of it. It was, I, I could give everything I had from nine to five, but in once the last class was over, I had to, I had to go repair and yeah. rejuvenate yeah. and regenerate uh, in other ways. That empath thing can go a couple of different ways. I mean, in some ways you could make the argument that a really good actor is the, this sort of sponge-like person who can take mm-hmm. in a variety of experience, you know, because you're you're inevitably going to be doing a role that doesn't relate to your real life and you're going to have to rely on your um, connection with other people to inform that. But, but I think for a lot of us, and I, I might consider myself part of that group, it's, it's, if you don't necessarily know how to fil- filter it, it's all very overwhelming. And then instead of being able to make it work for you in an acting capacity, you're just like traumatized and overwhelmed. It's absolutely true. And that's, you know, and, and then I go back to it. I say, well, what did we know at 17 or 18 or 19 years old, how to, what to do with that or how to process it or, um, you know, what to do when, when the class was over, it just sort of hung out there sort of unfinished and, you know, some of us would go smoke a cigarette. Some of us would go smoke a joint. Some of us would go have a cocktail. Some of us would go to that gym on the corner and get on the Stairmaster for 30 minutes. But, um, you know, that there was no nurture between what we gave in class and what we did when we left. We had to kind of figure that part out ourselves. You know, it's so interesting. I'm just, you, you know, that, that statement you made about the, um, they stripping us down and someone would cry and that would be the, so you, you saw it as bullshit and I saw it as trying, I would try to, it, it, it was bullshit, but I'm just saying at the time I saw it as I wanted to emulate that. So I saw mm-hmm. someone once do that. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do that too. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cry and then I'll get attention. And I did that mm-hmm. in a class. And instead of that, <laughs> the person just said to me, Oh, go get a tissue. And so I couldn't even mimic the you person. Even get that. So it was like, yeah. you couldn't really win. It's not a good way to be. It's not. Right. But anyway, but I, you saw it as bullshit. Like you, there I was did. Any, maybe it's that Flint, Michigan situation. You guys, I, you know, we've talked about that on my podcast too, a little bit in, in that initial episode about where we're from and how that shapes us. Because I definitely, uh, on the surface could have liked a little, looked like a little wide-eyed girl from the Midwest, but I, I mean, Flint, Michigan, I mean, I went to an inner city public school, inner city public schools my whole life. I had, uh, diverse friends before it was cool, you know, like, like mm-hmm. before we were talking about it and examining that as a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, I, I, there's a toughness I think that I had about me and it's, I didn't, uh, know, I, for many years, that toughness was, um, I was difficult or hard to get along with or snippy or whatever. But really, I don't, I think that if I was a man, none of those things would have been said, you know? Yeah, for sure. So yeah. when you're talking about spanking the monkey earlier, um, mm-hmm. I was thinking of, and you said that's the way that we kept up with our, you know, classmates because it was before yeah. social media. When social media happened, Boz and I were just talking about this the other day, the, the, the frenzy in the first few days that you had Facebook where you're just like remembering all these people and wanting to see what's going on with them. Did you do that? Mm -hmm. And then did you do that with people that you went to theater school with? Absolutely. And it was actually MySpace first. 
<laughs> oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> the, I remember that's where I did find certain people and then, uh, you know, and then the, the journey over to Facebook, but I loved it. I mean, that's kind of when social media was social and it was kind of pure and untainted. And it was truly about all of this reconnection. And, you know, it was tough because when I left school, after a year, I also left Chicago. Um, and it wasn't easy to stay friends. I mean, like you had to make actual phone calls on a phone with a cord or you had to, you know, write a letter. We, I mean, maybe we were starting to email, but, um, you know, it was harder to stay friends and stay connected. So uh, I absolutely did that. Um, and also I was in high school. I, I was a theater cherub. I went and did the National High School Institute at Northwestern and there was another group of actor friends that I looked up very quickly and reconnected with. And, and it was cool. Cause you know, like I said before, I had great experiences with people in class, but I didn't socialize with everybody I was in class with. Like I kind of got out of Dodge at the end of the day. So I was also very happy and pleased that people reached out to me that they, that I was even, you know, mm -hmm. kind of out of sight, out of mind, but there were people that wanted to reconnect with me. And that was a great, yeah, that's well, people talk about it like war buddies, you know, whether you were there mm -hmm. for one semester or four years, it's like mm -hmm. nobody who didn't go through it really can necessarily, and no, not, like, not, not like it's some profound thing to understand. It's just a shared, shared experience. It is. So when you were talking about, oh, so a theme is search for authenticity. It sounds mm -hmm. like you found it before the theater school mm -hmm. and acting you didn't find it at the theater school mm -mm. Um, and you've had maybe a, a, a path of coming towards and going away from authenticity. Do you feel like you have that in your life right now? I do. I feel like I have that in my life right now. And part of it really became glaringly obvious to me when my dad died and I wasn't, I mean, I'm still my dad's daughter, but I wasn't, my family had a profound effect on me growing up. And as I grew up and moved away and sort of evolved and started my own family, raising my own kids, I started to see things about how I came up in a different way. And this isn't, I, I have a wonderful family. I love my parents dearly, but um, uh, we, um, I was not brought up to be a, a free communicator or a free thinker. And but I was like on the inside, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't sit down and have a heart to heart with my mom or my dad about anything as a 17 or 18 or 19 year old. I didn't share their views on some things. I didn't share their politics on some things and a lot of things. Um, but they were, you know, they're still my family. I'm not really, I don't have a very close relationship with my siblings. They're a lot older than me. Um, but it was just weird how long I took that with me. Like in my meeting my husband and falling in love and getting married, I still cared very much what my parents thought about different decisions we made or how we should handle something or whatever. Um, and I have thoughts having, you know, my, some of these stories aren't just mine to tell, but I, I grew up, I understand now and have the vocabulary to say, I grew up with a, in a family with a, who I believe is a true clinical narcissist. Um, I believe him I don't know if I'm going to ask you to edit this out or not, because I haven't really said it out loud yet, but I grew up with some, a, a sibling who I believe is a sociopath. And that was... Been uh, there, done that. <laughs> okay, so, but it can take you a while. Even watching or studying about other people, 
it took a long time before I had the guts to turn around and, and apply that to myself or my own experience. So you could come close to this point where you think you're authentic, but then you have to say those words out loud and mm, maybe I'm not ready to do that yet. Or maybe I'm not ready to write that story or whatever. And I think um, authenticity is on a spectrum, just like everything else. So like, mm-hmm. I think it's, impo- I think we'd all be dead if we were authentic all the time because right. someone would just, it, it would just be too much, but I think right. right. The search for a balance of maybe more authenticity than not and for mm-hmm. me, it's like you, you, you definitely, um, the search, maybe it's about the search for mm-hmm. authenticity versus, you know, being authentic. But for me, it's like, I hear when you talk, I hear a lot about authenticity and a lot about community. You sound like a real community mm-hmm. builder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I will say, I, uh, I felt, and I've only really identified this probably in the last 10 years or so, um, those years in Chicago, I was surrounded by amazing people and I, I made lifelong friends, but there was a missing piece. Um, there was a, a loneliness that I couldn't really identify or figure out what would uh, alleviate that. And part of several years later, meeting my husband and falling in love with him, I realized what that was and it, I needed to learn how to love myself. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm not, marriage is, is fabulous and hard and ugly and pretty. And, you know, like I've been married 21 years coming up. So um, I have a a real honest, uh, like I'm not pie in the sky about those, but he definitely in loving me taught me that I was lovable and um, began helping me fill that, that void. And it wasn't his love that did it. It was mine. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me the ability to kind of examine and look, uh, at a lot of the things that we have to come to terms with and heal and move on from and, and whatever. Mm. And I think to me, theater, my favorite part of acting was always rehearsal. It was, I had a little stage fright. It was never performance. I never really cared about handing what we'd created over to the audience. And probably what I needed in all those years was therapy. It was probably therapy, right? Mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, and I think I said something like that in that conversation with my advisor who, and I, I don't want to necessarily say who it was because so many people had a great experience with this person. I just didn't happen to click. I don't think sure. with this person, but um, I, I remember, you know, maybe saying that like the, the part that I loved about creating theater uh, all happened before opening night. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Even with with writing, the part that I loved about blogging was creating the story. Once you hit publish, it's not yours anymore. People can interpret it any way they want. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pieces being about me once I send it out into the world. And Yeah, you're a process person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's weird. We've had a lot of conversations about whether or not the theater school was conducive to knowing yourself or loving yourself. And, you know, I think it we'll we'll just say we've heard it's different now and we're going to mm-hmm. talk to some people we're actually going to talk to somebody pretty soon who's currently um in the, his bfa program so we'll hear yeah. about it from him but there does seem to be this persistent myth or there was a persistent myth that if you were mentally healthy then you were not going to be a great artist. And I think what we've learned over these last uh, couple of decades is, no, you're much better when it's something that you can control your access to versus just stepping into an emotional landmine 
every night right. and and flaying yourself and then as you say ha- having to go out into the world and kind of mm-hmm. figure it out co- cope cope in right. whatever way you can and it doesn't even work so so like flaying yourself <laughs> if it worked we'd all i mean that's the thing that always gets me as a practical matter i'm like they mm-hmm. didn't even teach us the actual skill that worked if you flay yourself right where's my paycheck? It doesn't actually equate. So I think well, it's, it's this, this weird relationship between art as a commodity and art for art's sake. Like we were supposed to become these commercially successful actors, but that didn't always make us artists or creating art. You know what I mean? But they still wanted the same from you for both. Right. And it, it's, there was a disconnect there. I mean, if my daughter wanted to go to a theater conservatory right now, I would probably um, give her the opinion that that type of training, I think, would be better suited to a more experienced human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe not as a 17 or 18 year old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're probably right about that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. did you become a practicing therapist? No, no, I didn't. I, my uh, uh, emphasis in studying psychology was on organizational psychology. And I have been um, in the year, I, I had several years off to be a stay-at-home mom, but I um, have been in management and director type positions and marketing, and then later in fitness. Yeah, I sort of stumbled into a, a job with the YMCA, uh, working in brand management. But I also started teaching fitness, and it was a kind of a. I mean, a lot of us. It sounds funny, but a lot of us former dancers stumble into a Zumba class. And it puts us back in touch with that part of us that loved to move to music. Um, and, and that's what I did. I stumbled into a Zumba class and, and I eventually like through the years opened a studio and was more focused on personal training and coaching athletes. But my business partner was the dance fitness instructor. Uh, these women our our niche was kind of those women of a certain age that have had their babies and are trying to figure out who they are again. Um, not just mom and not just wife or not just what, but trying to, for that hour that they came and worked out with us, um, it was, the focus was on them and not on someone else. And, and that was definitely performing um, and direct, you know, like helping people find the positive stuff within themselves and bringing it out. And um, so that was cool. And then we uh, moved to Florida about three years ago, Um, And through that time, I was writing and blogging, and I did have the opportunity to even participate in some blogging conventions and teach some master classes and talk about writing humorously. And my blog got a little attention here and there. I mean, it wasn't enormous, but it popped up on like some best of lists and whatever. So for a while, it it was huge, but to me, but then um, people where I lived in this town in North Carolina, found it and it and and knew it was me that was writing it and it became very difficult to continue writing with the honesty I did because people I was recognizable and people could like would think that they would find themselves in my stories or whatever and it just became very difficult to be authentic Authentic. (laughs) (laughs) my husband and I had some marital issues at the time too and I didn't want to write about that because uh, I didn't want to tell his story 
And so it, it just all became difficult and I, and I let that go. But when we moved down to Florida a couple of years ago, um, it was uh, a move that happened primarily because I have a, this sibling who committed a crime and went to prison. And so we moved to Florida to be close to my parents to help navigate all of that with them. And my kids are older now and I, they're athletes and I uh, have personally trained them, like physically trained them, but I also uh, support their, their basketball players. And I am in, I volunteer with the league that they play in. And I recently uh, announced a couple basketball games. Oh, it's not something I ever, ever imagined when I was standing, you know, in front of that building on Kenmore that, you know, whatever, 30 years later, I would be announcing a bat. I mean, I don't, I didn't know anything about basketball then. And it's just hilarious, but it brings me so much joy to be on that microphone and saying these kids' names in this league um, who might not ever play varsity ball or any, you know, but in our rec league, they get treated like, pros and it's awesome do you do play-by-play or are yeah, you little, the... so I'm, I don't I my basketball IQ is not an, an high enough to be a true color commentator but I can announce scores and fouls and that's so cool you know, checking in or checking out of the game kind of a thing yeah and, and you know in the beginning like we can you know Joseph O'Lear and they run out that's cute i mean if you are born with the desire to perform it just it never goes away you you just have to figure out the way that you're going to do it and we've talked to people who say my audience is uh, the people who are sitting at my bar my audience is my high school english class my audience is my client my my group therapy clients i used to have them do little drama Mm -hmm. skits yeah i mean for sure and that's it's a beautiful way to say it if it's in you it it'll it'll manifest itself somewhere for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So before we let you go, you mentioned that you did a couple of intros. Do you remember what they yeah, were? So I did for colored girls, which was fabulous. And then I cannot remember the name of what we did second quarter, but it was horrible. Like it was, <laughs> so we went from being the best that everybody was talking about to the worst that everybody was talking about. And it was, I can't remember who directed it partially because about two thirds of the way through the process, the school stepped in and removed that director and put somebody out. He wasn't part of the theater school. He was somebody from the outside. And I mean, he was terrible. He was not, he, it was not a great script for us. And he was directing the play in a very, um, like my direction for my role was to go watch Sunset Boulevard and imitate Norma Desmond, which okay, but that's not what we're here. Right? That's not what we're here to do. And then um, the third one I did, Patrice Eggleston directed, and it was The Gut Girls, which was a cool feminist little play um, about. Uh, I, I can't remember all the ins and outs, but women who kind of like, I think in wartime who took out. Was roles. it British? Yes. Yes. Yeah, she, she likes it. She loves yes, British. We all had to learn these Cockney accents and yeah. Leonard Roberts was in it and Trisha Buer Kavan. She's Trisha Kavan now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was super fun. That, so, so we, I ended again on a high note, but it was, there is nothing, Nothing more humbling than going from the show everybody is talking about to being in the show everybody is talking about. You know? 
<laughs> yeah. And you're only as good as your last exactly. performance. And if it, it, you know, and it's the same is true at the very top of Hollywood. Like you can be the darling yeah. and you make a clunker and it's yeah. like, you know, there's no guarantees. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no for guarantees. Sure. And I, you've asked a couple people about their audition pieces. Did we have to do two? Did we have to do one and then a Shakespeare? I think uh, that's my opinion. I don't know if it's right or not, but I think we had to do <coughs> a Shakespeare and then a modern okay. piece. Because I don't remember what I did for Shakespeare, but I kind of argued with my high school director about what the piece that I took to do for, for you know my audition piece, my non-Shakespeare one. Um, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do, and I just didn't speak up about it, but it was um, a monologue from Whose Life Is It Anyway? Oh, that's what you wanted it to do. It is not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do a piece oh. where I sat still because he was paralyzed. She was paralyzed. Um, she didn't move. She sat. And But my director was like, well, you know, I think that da-da-da, vocal quality and this and that. And the so I was like, all right, I did it. And then the first question I got when it was over was from Bessie Hamilton. And she said, why on earth would you audition with a piece where you don't move? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's almost the rule instead of the yeah. exception that people did the mm -hmm. wrong yeah. thing. They picked the wrong thing, whether it's for their audition to the theater right. school or their yeah. showcase when they, they left. Wrong, uh -huh. just not good choices, right. and for all various reasons. Mm -hmm. But but you got in. But I got I mean, in. Something. They I got something. in. I made it through. I could have graduated if I wanted to, probably. But that musical <laughs> theater class, you, man. Once I came face to face with that, I was like, this is. I'm yeah, out. musical theater. Musical theater was one of those oh classes God. that we you got into it, and then you and then you all of a sudden learned, oh, uh, there's the pe people who can mm -hmm. sing, and there's the people who can't. And that's sing. where I became familiar with the term triple threat. Uh huh. Was, yeah. Like it never. I was like, you know, you can have all the musical roles. You, I don't want any of. I don't want any part of it. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you. You're in your journey of authenticity. You're in a really yeah. good place. Yeah, for sure. And I'm excited to see where this podcast takes. Well, you, you guys will have and, to come be on it. We'll have to. Oh, we'll have to yeah, yeah. Come we'd back love and to. Then we can um, definitely talk about that. some more stuff. Because I swear, listening, I just have to say to you guys real quick, and you can cut this if it's okay. not interested. Interesting, but I ha I can't even tell you how much I have enjoyed your podcast. <sighs> I, the first oh, episode you. I listened to was just Hannah. And it's like, you know, that first wave of getting back in touch with people was seeing them on TV and then it was seeing them on Facebook. And now it's hearing their voices and like reminiscing with them. And even, I mean, I've talked, I, you have no idea, but in my car in the mornings when I'm driving to work, I join your conversations about cults and um, yeah, I love the story about you not telling your boss that the mom called or whatever. Oh, God. <laughs> the call it tracker. Is, call tracker gate. Really, I, I selfishly, I have, it has given me such a wonderful reunion with people I care about very much. And uh, I just love it. That is awesome. And it's also, I feel so honored that like we get to know people like yourself who we didn't mm -hmm. know at school, but we've, we're have we so close to right. knowing. And now we get to know yeah. you. And so now we get to be friends. Yay. And now yeah, and it's it, it really is like what I what I'm sitting here remarking to myself about is 
you know, I did have some trepidation talking to you because we've never met before. Mm -hmm. And previously we've been able to say, oh, yes, I remember this about you. I remember Mm -hmm. that about you. But what I'm realizing is there it's not that it's a monolith, but there is a type of person that chooses to do this education. (laughs) And it's a smart person. And it's usually a pretty related and connected person. Mm -hmm. And so there is this like sisterhood, brotherhood um, that is undeniable. For sure. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!